We have all had painful events in our lives that can lead to depression, anxiety, addiction, or broken relationships. But here's a secret. It is not about what happened to us that causes suffering. It's the stories we believe about ourselves. Join us as we shine light on how to rewrite our stories, avoid the shadows of shame, and travel along the pathway to joy, love, and connection. It's the Finding Peace Podcast with your host, Amazon best-selling author, Troy L. Love. John Callis is a veteran writer, director, and producer in the entertainment business. He has done all kinds of things, including making feature films to motion picture trailers, national and international commercials, projects and documentaries that he's worked on all over the world, including Russia. He's worked with the Walt Disney Company, and he wrote and directed the feature film No Solicitors, starring Eric Roberts, and has adapted New York Times bestselling author William H. Labarge's book Lightning Strikes Twice. John has worked with many actors, including Mel Gibson, Walter Matthau, Jack Nicholson, Madonna, Eddie Murphy, and Mel Brooks. But that's not why John is here today. John recently wrote a book called When the Rain Stops, and he shares his experiences of coming out of depression and trauma and even an attempted suicide as part of what happened to him while he was doing all of these other amazing things and how he was able to figure out how to get past the anger that he was carrying and be able to find greater peace and joy in his life. And so please welcome my friend and guest, John Callis. Hello, John. It's my honor and privilege to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit about you and the journey. You've had quite the journey in the entertainment business, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, but mostly we're going to be talking about your book, When the Rain Stops, and your life. But first, tell us a little bit about you and what brought you here. That's a loaded question, Troy. Uh, well, on a personal note, I live in uh, Santa Monica, California, uh, with my wife of 30 years. Her name's Linda. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a heck of a journey, uh, best decision I ever made in my life. A woman taught me what unconditional love's about, so it's a lot of healing that went on with her. Um, we have two grown-up children. I, I call them children because they'll always be my kids no matter how old they get. Um, on the career side, I've been in the film and business, film and um, TV business for over 40 years. I'm an Emmy-nominated director. Uh, I've done some iconic work. I've um, won a lot of awards for my work, uh, and I've been very privileged to have been involved in a lot of things that uh, a lot of people wish they could have been involved in in my career. Um, and it uh, to be honest with you, it wasn't easy because I came into the business uh, without any nepotism. I knew no one when I got to Los Angeles. I had $75 in my pocket, and I, had, I came here to do my master's degree in directing. And then after that, I was scratching my head going, now what? <laughs> and uh, that, that was the beginning. Why that business? What 
drew you to become a director? Good question. Um, I started college out as a chemistry major because I wanted to cure cancer because my dad had died of it. He died 10 days after my third birthday, and I was, uh, well, we'll get into the trauma of it all, but um, when I got to college, I signed up as a chemistry major, and after a while, my teacher took me for a walk, and he said, you know, you're probably one of my best students I've ever had. You get it, three-hour labs in 45 minutes. You're an A student, but why do you want to be a chemist? And so I told him about my dad and everything, and he put his arm around me, and he goes, uh, I hate to say it, but you're out of my class. I said, what? He goes, you're not a chemist. You're not the guy with the pocket pens and all that. Uh, You're you're a creative person. I can see it. I can feel it. You need to go find yourself. So he basically threw me out of the class. um, And I was sitting in the uh, quad in uh, college, and my friend, uh, African-American gal, came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just got thrown out of chemistry class. And... And, uh, you know, we went through the whole scenario. She was laughing because she said, you'd be really good at it. Then she said, can you do me a favor? Now I'm thinking, okay, she's going to ask me to help her move her room or something, right? And I said, sure, of course, Liz. I love you. I'll do whatever you want. And she goes, uh, we need somebody to help read lines at, at the theater in the play. I said, hold on, I'm not an actor. And she goes, no, 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 you just read the lines and it'll be fine because we just need the help. I said, well, I love you. I'll do whatever you want. So I went over there. And about an hour into the rehearsal, I turned to the director and I said, hey, listen, I got to go do my homework. He goes, you can't leave a rehearsal. I went, what? He goes, you got the leading role in this. You can't just walk away. And I look at Liz and she's going. I said, Lucy, you have some explaining to do to me. You know, so so I stayed with it. And uh, I I don't know, there was a connection with the people there. Um, They made me feel safe. They made me feel comfortable. And uh, the following year, I had written a play that um, the head of the department read and said, we're going to perform this uh, at parent-teacher weekend. And so you need to cast it and rehearse it. And I went, oh, boy. And um, it it went off really well. Got a lot of good feedback. And it just got into my blood. So I started working in the theater. And then when I went to Colorado, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this more. um, I had an opportunity to work professional theater. And then uh, I went to Los Angeles to do my master's degree and eventually got into the film business. Thank you for sharing that. I can resonate so much. The theater was my safe place. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of challenges and difficulties. And so being able to be up on a stage and, and sometimes not having to be myself for a little while, oh, uh, was amazing. And having the cast members sort of be like my second family that we that we loved each other and 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 supported each other it was such a such a beautiful place tell me a little bit more uh, about your book why did you write it what inspired you to share your story about your trauma well it started truthfully about 35 maybe 40 years ago um i had sought after some therapy because I really needed some help. And the therapist said, why don't you take a little time and write out some stuff about your life? So I wrote, I guess it must have been 20, 30 pages. And uh, he read it. And um, next time I met, he was he put his arms around me and said, I have no idea how you made it through life. None. 
I said, from what you went through, it's just not possible. So I decided that I would start just journaling because it, it felt good to get it out of my system. And um, then uh, eventually my mom and I uh, made some amends and we developed a really close relationship. And my stepfather, I just fell in love with the guy who was great. And um, I just decided to keep writing. And it finally got to a point where I thought, maybe if I found a way to help myself, maybe others could benefit from it. So I wrote the initial draft as some other character. And my editor and my wife started screaming at me and say, no, you've got to write this as your memoir because this is all you, isn't it? I said, yeah. And everything in it's true. So why are you writing it as a third person? You need to write it as a first person. So I took their advice and started rewriting the whole thing. And then I said, you know, I want to put two voices in here. I want to put the, the little boy who went through the trauma and then in the gray area is the adult looking back, having a perspective of what the perceived reality was versus what the real reality was. So there's a little bit of both. And um, I had to do it that way because I, I had to rip off the scabs of youth and get to the real um, pain that I was going through so that it would be an honest read. And then the adult can come and look and say, okay, that's how you were feeling, no doubt about it, but this is really what was going on. You weren't a victim. These were the things that were happening. Yes, and it's beautifully done. I had a client yesterday who asked me this question, and I'd love to hear how you would answer it. He started to realize that he's not as empathetic as he wants to be, and uh, he's kind of kept up walls in order to, like, prevent himself from feeling pain in his life. And so he came and started working with me and, and he's identified, wow, there is a lot of painful things in my life. He asked me, do I have to go and look at every single one of them and deal with each one of them? Or can I just acknowledge that they were there? And then can I just heal? Like just say, yeah, that happened and just kind of heal that way. Or, or do I have to go back and and look at each and every one of them. I'm, I'm curious, John, how you would answer that. I don't think there's a right or wrong to that question. Uh, I think it's a good question for that person to ask. I think it's important to understand the fundamentals of what he was really saying. And what he, in my opinion, what he was saying, and again, it's my opinion, I'm not a psychiatrist, but like myself, uh, depression in that has a certain place where we hide in and we're very safe, and we own. And it's the only place that is ours. We can hear our own voice, and we get caught up in being safe in there. So to want to come out and just acknowledge it is almost a Band-Aid approach to it. Because if you don't really deal with it deeply and, and dig into it, it will come out in other forms of your life. Um, you may wind up hating your wife and not really hating her, but hating the situation that triggers you. So I guess for me, I would encourage him to do the work, as painful as it is, get it completely out, gut-wrenchingly if necessary, and be able to feel that you own that just as much as you own the depression. I love that answer. So as I'm reading your book, we jump right into exploring that you are 12 years old, and you're sitting on a train going to Virginia, and you're watching your mom get smaller and smaller in the distance. 
and you tell us what's going on there, and, and that's how you started the book. And then what were some of the whys that you were on that train? Where were you going? What were some of the milestones of your life that has really impacted you and led you to come and find many of the answers that you write about in your book? A little bit of the backstory about the train. Um, Ten days after I lost my dad, I um, was convinced by myself that I had killed my dad because I was alive. And if I wasn't born, he wouldn't have died. That started a really bad guilt thing. And then the trauma set in and denial and anger to the point where I started screaming F you to God. And I hated everybody. Nobody can comfort me. And, you know, uh, the world is a horrible place. They took my dad. And eventually what happened uh, as I grew up is I started making up stories that I was going, you know, out with my dad on weekends because all the kids were talking about their dad. And I didn't want to be that kid. You know, oh, he's the kid that doesn't have a dad, you know. Uh Um, and, and that just compiled my anxiety. And then I started having dreams where I was falling down a spiral. So I didn't want to sleep anymore. So I was up. And so that created really raw nerves. And uh, then there were a lot of situations along the way where I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, one was I went to a party. A friend's parents were out of town. A lot of alcohol were I don't know, 13, 12. No. Yeah, somewhere around that age. And uh, this girl and I were talking and she had to get home or she would be grounded the rest of her life, you know, dramatic as we were back then. And so I asked my friend, could I borrow your parents' car? I promise I'll be careful because do you even know how to drive? And I said, yeah, my aunt let me drive her Morgan so I know how to drive and I promise I'll be careful. So I took her home, very careful. I went all back roads so no cops would be around. And as I pulled in the driveway, there were police all over the place and I got out and they said, who are you? I said, John Callis, immediately thrown up against the car, handcuffed. And out comes the parents with the kid. The parents came home unexpectedly, and he said that I had stolen the car. Oh my goodness, no. Yeah, so the next day when we were in school, I walked straight up to him and punched him in the face. So <laughs> that didn't help. Um, then there was a situation in uh, uh, where my brother had been attacked and I hidden in the junkyard basically uh, until the kid I knew that did it. And we got into a fight and I picked him up literally over my head and threw him in a ditch. And I didn't know there were panes of glass laying in the ditch. And uh, the cops showed up that night because they knew who it was and they didn't know if the kid was gonna live. And that scared the living bejesus out of me. So by the time I was uh, 12 years old, uh, and by this time I still had not had a stepdad, uh, he started coming into the picture right about this time. And the courts basically gave my mother a choice. Either you send him to military school or we're gonna send him to reform school. But this ends now. So one morning she took me to from New Jersey to New York City and put me on a train at 12 to go to military school in Virginia alone. And as the train was pulling away, she turned away and started walking away. And I never felt so abandoned in my life. I thought, you're just getting rid of me because you want to be with your boyfriend. I mean, all this stuff. Little did I know she turned away because she was crying. Um, it was later on in the book, I talk about this a lot, but late, I found out later in life how painful that was for her. And until I grew up and even had my own kids, I never fully appreciated the decision she made. And although military school was extremely harsh condition, I was bullied, beat, I mean, broomsticks broken over my back because I was really out of control. Now, 
Was it warranted? Maybe not to that degree, but I had a mouth on me. You're an angry kid, yeah? Yeah, well, I was, but I was angry, scared, abandoned. And um, you had a lot of stuff. Yeah, and then uh, the first night there, I got knocked out three times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was a hell of a beginning. <laughs> wow. How did all of that impact you? You talk about the depression. When did that depression start to set in? You write that you know what feeling suicidal felt like. When did that show up for you? And how did you manage to get out of all of that? Great question. Um, I don't think you can ever fully get out of depression. I think you learn to manage it and not let it control your life. You know, so I, I want to be honest about that. I sometimes have my moments. And um, sometimes my wife says, what's going on? I said, my turn in the barrel today, and I just got to get through it. And I got to think it out, figure out what's going on, and get on with it, which I've learned to do. Uh, so going back to your question, um, at 15, I was transferred into a private school. And of course, the first day, a bully started up on me. And for three years, I was spit on, pushed around. And, you know, I just didn't want to fight. I wanted to be left alone. And one night it got so bad that I walked to the edge of the dock where there was a lake there and it was partially frozen. And I said, this ends now. I, I can't handle this anymore. And I jumped into the lake. Lungs filled up with uh, cold water, started coughing underwater. And I something kicked in and I just grabbed this, the dock and pulled myself out of it. And I was shaking like a leaf. And I thought, there's got to be something better than this. It just can't be this bad. There's got to be something. Now, I had no answers. And uh, the next day or two, a coach came to me that was a soccer coach. And he said, how come you're not playing uh, soccer? I said, I don't play sports. He said, why not? I said, I, I just don't play. And he sat with me for an hour and got it out of me about my dad and everything. And he encouraged me to come try out for soccer. He says, you're on the team. Just come and I will take care of you. And of course, the bully was on the team, too. So for three years, uh, this went on on the field, off the field. And finally, it was uh, nomination time for co-captain of the team. And I wanted it really badly because by then I had become pretty good defenseman because of my anger. I had some place to put it along with ice hockey and a bunch of wrestling and everything. I said, knock the snot out of anyone in my way <laughs> because it was it was fair game. You know, it was a sport. <laughs> so uh, he stood up and said, um, I, I don't want this guy being co-captain. He won't even stand up for himself. And I snapped. I said, any time. So he said, right now, you know, like a bully. So I went up to him, he knocked me down. I got up, he knocked me down again. I got up, he knocked me down a third time. And then I just, something snapped. And I kicked him where it hurt really badly. And he was on the ground, I jumped him. And I started digging my fingernails behind his eyes. I was gonna pull his eyes out. And because of my wrestling, he couldn't get out of my hold. And he was a big guy, um, but I wanted to kill him. And uh, basically the team dragged me off and I left the field. I said, I can't deal with this. And the coach came down and said, you got to come back. I said, coach, I'm really sorry. I, I lost it. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. Even the headmaster was in the window cheering you on. And I thought, God, this world is insane. You have to fight to prove your worth. It, and that's where something started working my head. Long story short, I was nominated unanimously to be co-captain of the team, including the bully. And after that, he left me alone because he knew at that point, if he had triggered anything, I was going to knock the as much as I could. So that 
that <laughs> that was one moment. The ice hockey coach was another. My chemistry teacher um, said, if you wrestle, I'll tutor you to make sure you get through chemistry and all this other stuff. And uh, so I started building a little bit of confidence in myself because I, I saw I could succeed in something. And that was uh, sports. As you're telling the story, I'm hearing how these angels are showing up in your life, your coach and other people, your chemistry teacher, your friend. These people are showing up and offering support when you're in a dark place. And and honestly, it's beautiful. When I'm working with people, I often ask them to look back at those difficult times and see if they can identify some of the angels that were there in their lives. And it sounds like you had some. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, uh, the hardest part, I think, was asking for help. You know, it's because you, you, I was embarrassed, to be honest with you. I thought I was really sick and I thought I was unique. And I thought, you know, nobody's going to ever understand what the hell I'm going through. And it, it was very difficult to, to reach out for any kind of help. But fortunately, help came to me. When did you finally decide that you had to put faith in yourself, like, I'm going to do some work and I'm going to start tackling these issues. What, what led you to make that choice? Um, when I moved to Colorado, I, I, I won't bore the audience with the whole story, but I was invited up to the mountains and fell in love with it. It was quiet. It was peaceful. You could smell the ponderosa pine. There was just something very organic that I had never experienced in my life. And so I found a little cabin up there and we had, I think, three or four cabins where I was living, and it was literally the end of the road before it turned into the National Forest of Colorado. So it was the end of civilization, <clears throat> no phone, no TV, and of course, back then, no computers, um, and I had no heat. So I had to learn to chop firewood because it got 37 below zero where I was living. <laughs> so I learned very quickly how to stay warm. My neighbor, uh, who we affectionately called OB, would, came over, introduced himself, and um, he taught me how to play chess. And as we were playing, he started teaching me um, life on a chessboard. He said, life's all about chess. It's about moves, how your opponent's thinking, how far ahead you can think. And then he got it out of me about my whole life story. And he started spiritually evolving me by making me understand that all those circumstances were not my fault, that my dad dying was not my fault. It was his path, it wasn't mine and that I had to learn to forgive not those people as much as I had to forgive myself. <clears throat> and that was a big turning point for me. I thought, yeah, maybe there is hope here. Maybe I can. And then there was this beautiful woman that I just wanted to date, but i too scared to even ask. So he walked over and dragged her over and said, here, meet this guy. <laughs> and we started dating. And uh, that started giving me some confidence that this beautiful woman could actually like a guy like me. And, uh, and then Obi continued teaching me um, spirituality and we did a lot of meditation and amazing walks in the mountains. And uh, it, it, was, it was the beginning, what I thought to be a complete healing. Then I moved to LA and it all went downhill again because I, I knew no one. I was, I mean, everyone would say, where are you from the way you dress? Because I was dressed like a mountain guy, you know, boots. <laughs> And they go, and you're not from L.A. I said, no, I'm from Colorado. And they said, well, you look like it. So, so I had to find a job, which I did. 
um, to feed myself. And I eventually got a little apartment. And I was finishing up my master's degree. And this guy sitting in a, a, a cafe was being laughed at because he was all dressed in white and bald. And I looked over and we kind of said hi to each other. And then I went back to doing my master's degree. And he came over and sat next to me. And uh, he asked me what I was doing. I told him, he said, can I come see the play? Now, back then, coming out of Colorado, the last thing you ever ask anyone is, what do you do for a living? You know, you talk to people and get to know them as people and develop relationships. And so for about <clears throat> six months, that's what I did with this guy. And finally, I looked at him and said, hey, by the way, do you work? He goes, yeah, I do. I said, what do you do? He goes, oh, I'm an art director in the film business. I went, no kidding, really? He goes, yeah, have you ever thought about being in the film business? Said, yeah, that's my lifelong dream. But, I, you know, up until you, I knew no one. I said, well, let me see if I can do anything to help you out. Three o'clock in the morning, he calls me and tells me to come with him because he's going to uh, take me to a set. And so he stands me on the set and he says, if you stand here, everything will be fine. Somebody bothers you, just tell him my name and say you're here as a guest. So a crumply old guy comes walking up and says, what are you doing here? I went, oh, God, I'm getting thrown off my first set. It's 15 minutes in. And it turned out to be a special effects guy, very well known. Um, and he took me under his wing. There's some funny stories. I, I won't bore you with it all now, but, uh, he took me under his wing for a couple of years and taught me how to blow up people's brains and shoot them. And, you know, it kind of was interesting for me. And then, uh, I had a couple of opportunities to be in the art department from my friend. And then one day during lunch, I made a comment that the, the set could be running a lot better because, uh, the actors didn't know their lines because they didn't have the right accent the guy sitting next to me says, stands up and goes, what's your name? I said, what are you doing? The guy on the other side said, that's the director. I went, oh, God. I, I just felt so embarrassed. And uh, long story short, I became his dialogue director. And then uh, he, then after that, the next job, he called me and said, you want to be my assistant director? I said, yeah, sure. I had no idea what that was about. So uh, I call, pulled the crew together my first day and said, guys and gals, I'm your assistant director, and honestly, I have no clue what I'm doing. I don't even know what an assistant director is supposed to do. Can you please help me? And they all looked at each other in confusion. They said, do you want our help? I said, I would really appreciate it. And they were just so elated that they took me through the whole thing. And if I made a mistake on the set, one of them said, no, do this. Okay. And I would follow their lead. And then I started getting jobs as a production manager, and then it all went dry couldn't get a job. It just died on me. And I was in a council employment agency. And then I took a job as a waiter because my stepdad said, look, if you're really struggling, get a job as a waiter. I said, waiter? I'm a filmmaker. Because John, every night you're going to go home with cash in your pocket. They feed you one meal a day. You'll be able to put gas in the car and you can keep looking for your career. I said, it's well, not a bad idea. So the long and short of it, <clears throat> about six months in, a production manager I knew came in and started laughing because he saw me carrying a tray of, of food. I said, unless you want to wear this, I wouldn't be laughing. <laughs> and uh, so he had me over his table and uh, he said he was starting a picture the following week. Would I want to be a prop master? Again, no prop experience whatsoever. <laughs> but I took the job. I figured I'll figure it out somehow. And he gave me an assistant that knew how to do props. So I took the assistant's lead and he goes, you don't mind me telling you what to do? I mean, you are the prop master. I said, yeah, I really would like you to tell me what to do. And so we teamed up. And then after that, things started clicking. And uh, I got into the MTV um, scene as a producer because somebody said, this guy's really good. You should hire him. And then a friend of mine got me into commercials. And 
then I started my own company and it just started going and never looked back. I love how vulnerable you were and being open. I don't know what it's like to work in that industry, but vulnerability doesn't seem like most people in that industry would do that very often. So that had to take guts, yeah? It's, it's a tough business, Troy. Very tough. You got to have a thick skin. You had to be very courageous to do that. It was something I wanted, so. So I could tell, and it sounds like it has been a beautiful career for you. What's one of the projects that you are most proud of? The TriStar logo. Uh, you know, Pegasus with the wings, the horse. Um, that to me was amazing because at the time, uh, CGI was not a thing. So we had to do every single element live and for real, except the wings. That's the one thing that CGI had to do, which was to build the wings on the horse. So I had to build these like 60 foot trusses with the cotton battings and painted backdrops and all that. We shot 70 millimeter, 35 millimeter, this division, I mean, all sorts of formats. And it took probably about a year to finish. <clears throat> and uh, it's one of the, I think, probably the best logo um, out of all the studios. Yeah, as you're talking as a, about it as a boy, I remember seeing that and thinking, oh my gosh, that is so cool. And you were a part of that. That is, that is freaking awesome. Yeah, I blurted it out in a movie theater once. I was sitting next to friend. hey, look, that's what I did. I went, Somebody turns and you did that? I said, yeah, yeah, but let's watch the movie now. Yeah, it was pretty cool to see it on the screen. If someone is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, what would you suggest? What would you maybe offer that you think might be most helpful? A couple of things, Troy. Um, journaling helped a lot because it helped me to identify things that I didn't even realize that were bothering me. And sometimes I would start out writing nice and neat and I'd start you know, scribbling hard and I would see the anger in me. Um, I, I personally... I'm not a believer in medication. Um, I think it, it can cause more problems than it can help, but I'm not a psychiatrist, so uh, I don't understand all the dynamics. But for me personally, it wasn't my path. Um, I did seek therapy because I had so many questions that I had come to the end of the road of trying to figure out. So I think that helped. And I think also if you do this in baby steps, you can't just wake up a morning and say, Today, I'm not going to be depressed. I am going to live a happy, wonderful, successful life. Um, I started simple things like get out of bed before I do anything. I'm going to make my bed. Now, maybe that's the only thing I did the whole day, but at least I did it. Or the next day or two or a week later, I'd make the bed and I'd go into the kitchen and if there were any dirty dishes, I'd clean them. Now, I wouldn't clean the whole house, but at least I did something. So I think activity that you decide for yourself, not somebody saying, this is what you need to do to get out of depression. You've got to do A, B, C, D, like 10, 12, 15 steps. It's too much for somebody. So overwhelming. Yeah. It's, it's overwhelming is right. So baby steps. I love that. Beautiful. If somebody were looking at your book and thinking, this looks like an interesting book, why would you want them to pick it up and read it? Not only because you wrote it, but what are you hoping people will get from reading your book, When the Rain Stops? Well, 
as I've said, I think in the preface or something, if this book actually saves one person's life, I'm going to consider it a bestseller. Um, what I hope people would get by reading it is that um, obviously there's hope for everybody. Um, I don't think you have to stay in that state forever if, if you decide you want to change it. Nobody else can decide for you. You have to decide. And I thought if I'm 100% honest, when somebody reads the book, they'll say, I can relate to this guy. He's not a clinical therapist. He's not coming from a place of, you know, I went to school, I've got a PhD, 12 PhDs and, and a duck and a horse and a rabbit. This, this guy literally went through it and he turned out okay. How did he do it? What were his steps? I mean, what made him successful? Why him? And I, um, I posted on Instagram a long time ago, if somebody reads my book and needs to talk, please call me, reach out to me. So this woman did. And we spent an hour and a half on the phone and uh, at the end, she, goes, she was crying. She said, you know, my mom died a long time ago. And I feel like you just channeled her because everything you've spoken to me about is exactly what she would tell me. And I thank you. So that was a pretty cool moment. And a reviewer on Facebook that I'd known for a while, um, he and his wife read the book. And his wife wrote me an email saying, um, thank you for this book. And after we read it, uh, he picked up the phone and called his mom, who he hadn't spoken to in 10 years. So I started seeing the power that the book had, not on an ego level, but on a healing level. So that's what I'm hoping is that it'll help people heal. Well, I have no doubt it will because I've already felt more grounded and more blessed just because I was able to hang out with you for 30 minutes already. Thanks, Troy. The work that I do is all around attachment wounds, and abandonment is one of those attachment wounds. Others include loss, rejection, those incidences you had when you were bullied and abandoned and losing your dad, like, those are profound wounds, and you've found a way to help heal some of those, and you've tended to some of those wounds, and you've given hope, and that is exactly why I wanted to have you here on the Finding Peace podcast, so that you could let people know that there's hope, that you can heal, that you can find more peace in your life. So, so thank you so much, John. Thank you so much for being here. One of the last things that we do when we have a guest on is the speed round question. There are 10 questions that I ask. So let's just see what comes up. Are you ready? Okay. Is there a timer or can... Uh... <laughs> No, you just take as long as you want. If I pass, do I get a lollipop? That's what I want. You know? That's right. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Question number one. What is the one thing about you that surprises people? Um, that I'm very much a giver, and it's really hard for me to accept the help. You know, I can give, but it's really hard for me to accept things. Yeah, me too. Number two, we've all faced a major decision in our lives that has resulted in us taking a left turn instead of going right. When were you faced with such a dilemma and how did that work out? The left turn for me was trying to kill myself. The right turn for me was making a decision I could do better. Yes, thank you. 
What book are you reading right now? The, it's called The End of Everything. Yeah, what's that about? Yeah, it's, it, it has a bit of a science um, uh, element to it, but this woman is brilliant how she's explaining the dynamics of life and how it, it works and everything, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Now I'm going to have to go check that out. When have you felt most alive? When both my children were born. Oh, look at your face. The first one just had tears in my eyes. The second one, I actually asked the doctor if I could deliver it. And he said, yeah, go ahead. And that, that was an amazing experience. Your face just lit up. Oh, that sounds like you're sharing it with me. I just love that. Thank you so much. If you were going to spend the rest of your life on an island and could only bring one item of personal meaning with you, what would you bring? My wife. Oh, wow, that's a really good answer. You should get a lot of brownie points for that later. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Name a person or a teaching that has had a profoundly positive impact on your life. Mark O'Brien, who's no longer with us. He passed away many years ago, but Mark, Opie. What was the impact that he had on your life? He made me realize um, that it wasn't about me and that I needed to forgive myself. Hmm. Awesome. What's a daily practice that you must do every day? Complete tasks that I start after I make, I make a list and I look at it and I find the one thing on the list I hate to do the most and that's the first thing I do. I gotta do that first because I know everything after that's gonna be much easier. <laughs> if I wait to the end, I'll be too frustrated. Get rid of that thing first, I tried it. I tried to tell my kids they haven't figured that out yet. They want to wait and do that last thing. I'm like, uh, it's gonna make your day. It, it's, it's an acquired skill. Yeah. I guess we've learned that as we get older. What's one question that you wish that I had asked you and how would you have answered it? What made you marry your wife? Uh, I w went to her, I, I met her in a gym, okay? And she was dating a guy and uh, she didn't even wanna talk to me, but I kept at it. And eventually he and she broke up. Um, and I told her I was dating three other women. I was, had sexual relationships with all of them. Everybody knew it, and she said, why? I said, because my seven-month first marriage was a disaster, and I don't trust myself. And she said, well, I just broke up with my boyfriend. I'm happy to date you because I don't want a relationship anyway. So I made a decision that I wanted to see which one of these women would actually become my friend as well as my lover and, and partner. And over time, no matter what I did, she was there and we fell in love. And one night uh, I put a little piece of chocolate on her pillow because I knew she liked chocolate. And she hugged me as if I had given her a diamond. And at that moment, I fell so madly in love with her because I found somebody that appreciated the art of giving, not what the gift was. And that moment was monumental. And no matter what I did to push her away after that because of my fear, she would hang in there and not give up and 
she really did teach me what unconditional love is all about. And uh, I, I have to tell you, she enriched my life so much that I can't even begin to list all the ways. Oh, I can tell that you love her so much. Uh, deeply. And we're 30 years, Troy, and we still hold hands while we watch TV in bed. Ah, I love it. That's so awesome. Yeah. And that is quite an accomplishment, especially nowadays. So good job, brother. Yeah, we laugh a lot. That's good. I mean, it hasn't always been easy. I mean, you know, I mean, life's about the roller coaster, right? Right. What does finding peace mean to you? Um, I think finding peace for me is finally being able to um, clean up my mess as I go. Uh, I think if you can do that, then you don't hold on to things in, in your gut. Um, I, I had a situation a couple of weeks ago where we all went to lunch and my son was parking the car and I went to the hostess. I said, uh, we're ready to sit down. She goes, uh, you can't sit down until all of you are here. And I looked, I said, listen, I've been coming to this restaurant longer than you've been working here. And he's just parking the car. Do I really have to get into this? And she goes, oh, she got all nervous and she sat us down. And I was looking at her and I could see she was still upset. And I excused myself from the table and I went over to her. I said, excuse me, do you have a second? She looked, she goes, yes. I said, I owe you a deep apology. And she goes, oh, oh no, it's okay, sir. I said, no, it's not acceptable the way I talk to you. I'm hungry and angry at the same time, so I'm hangry. And I took it out on you, and that's really disrespectful, and I apologize. And she had this big smile. She goes, you just made my day. And I said, okay. So you accept my apologies? She said, yes. And then I went back to the table, had my lunch, and I felt really cleansed because I got to clean that up, and I didn't put my garbage on somebody else and walk away. Oh, that's a beautiful story. I love it. Thank you. My last question is, where can people find you? I have a website, www.johncallis.com. Um, I'm all over Amazon as well. Um, but if you go to my website, you can see all my work, my entire career. Uh, and I will also put it out to your audience that if you feel lost or you just need somebody to talk to, reach out, we'll connect, and I'll talk to you on the phone or whatever you want. That is so very generous of you. Well, we got to help each other get through life, Troy. That's the only way we're going to work. Right? Do you have an event coming up? You said something about uh, maybe the date hasn't been determined, but you said something about an event? Yes. we. I'm working with a, a, a place called Gateway Clinic here in Santa Monica, and um, they've uh, generously allowed me to set up a book signing at their clinic, but we haven't managed to pick a date because their schedule, my schedule is all over the place, but um, that's what I'm looking at next. I'm so I'm sure that that will be posted on your website. So if anybody in the area wants to go meet you, they will have an awesome opportunity. Yes. That um, it'll be on Facebook, Instagram. Um, yeah. And uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, I will spread it wide. <laughs> well, John, that is so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with me this morning. 
It has been an honor and a privilege to meet you. I feel the same way, Troya. Thank you for all the questions. They were great questions. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for sharing your journey with me and being willing to be vulnerable. It's touched me so much. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and that um, we can maybe meet again in the future. Thanks, Troy. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Finding Peace podcast. If you loved the show or want to ask a question, let us know by going to TroyLLove.com. There, you can also learn about the Finding Peace 5-Day Challenge. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next episode. And if you are listening on iTunes, please give us a 5-star rating. It helps other people find this podcast more easily. Thank you for spending part of your journey with us. Copyright Finding Peace Consulting.